Hello, my name is Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. Today, I'm going to be talking to Marcus Bate. He's Partnerships and Communities Director at Mount Anvil, a London developer who uh, works in the residential market and unlike others has not entered the buy-to-let market. They partner with um, social housing providers and uh, create both affordable and um, other properties for sale on developments in, in London. We cover a wide range of subjects in this conversation, including how the design and character of a place can make its residents feel proud and connected, uh, how we can do better community engagement in a post-COVID world and where digital exclusion and digital inclusion fits in, and how the best outcome is not always the one that results in the most money. I hope you like it. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, Marcus, tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. I'm Marcus Bate from Mount Anvil. I'm immediately stumped by the first question. What do I do? He's new-ish, so I keep forgetting. Uh, I um, used to, for my first five years at Mount Anvil, be responsible for our investment function, so maximising the investment returns of our partnerships um, with the people that we develop. Uh, and then from Christmas, so still newish for me, I'm responsible for our partnerships and communities work, like in a nutshell, creating the best ever experience of partnership with the housing associations that we work with and with our funders, the GLA, with the local authorities in London that we exclusively work with, and then increasingly spending time improving our engagement investment with residents and local communities across London. So can you describe Mount Anvil to me, kind of the, the way it's, uh, where it's been and how it's changing um, and what it's uh, concentrating on these days? Yeah, yeah, sure, easy. So Mount Anvil's been in London, stayed in London, still in London um, for 30 years. Uh, it was, yeah, it's just had its 30th birthday quite recently. It was set up by a crazy, brilliant, hilarious Guy, Killian Hurley, who's still our CEO. So we're a family business. Uh, we're bigger than small and smaller than big. We might accept being a medium-sized business, about 200 of us. And we only work on a really small number of projects. It's quite unusual. So probably other businesses of our size might, might work on 20, 30, 40 projects. We work with six to eight partners at most at a time. Uh, our business... Uh, like our business purpose is to provide great homes for people to live in, where a great home is a great platform for their for their lives. Um, and to get the immediate accusation on the table, often people say, developers are greedy. Oh boy, we're really greedy. So in terms of our business model, um, the sites that we buy, we only buy sites ever if we can design the homes and places that go on them. And we have to build the homes and places that we design and we have to sell and market those as well. So you'll find Mount Anvil is all in on something or they're not there. So it's pretty much all residential. And um, I know uh, we've talked about before how you don't do any uh, buy-to-let. And you know, in a market where everyone is talking about buy-to-let, it might be interesting to find out why you don't uh, rent out your properties. 
Yeah, I love the surprise. A, a longtime friend of mine from Savills asked me on a panel recently, said, how are you finding your, your build to rent and you're helped by act, you know, activity? And said, yeah, we've done none. And I think she thought that meant it was bad news. And said, we've done none because we haven't done any. We just don't do any. Um, and when Savills came in and were talking to us about the proportion of the London residential transactions in build to rent and help to buy, it's mind-blowing. So we operate in the like the remaining traditional third segment. We sell homes to people who want to live in them. We may let them out to someone else, but we don't do it as a bulk rental transaction. So we just say traditional, build to sell. And increasingly, because all of our work was with housing associations, it's really traditional, but we think the most needed tenure, affordable rent, rented tenure in London, social rented housing for people on perhaps the lowest incomes. Uh, so you'll find that at least half of the homes that we design, build, uh, will be affordable homes uh, that housing associations will buy from us. That affordable housing, um, so is that growing as a proportion of what you would have on one of your average sites? Yeah, that's right. And I think we would say that with a lot of pride. When I started six years ago, we looked at our portfolio, we were a little over a third of our housing was affordable housing and two thirds private, which was more than some of our um, counterparts. But I wouldn't say that it put us head and shoulder above or different from. Uh, now, if you look at the sites and schemes that we are setting up partnerships on this year, they all have at least half of the homes as affordable housing. So in the course of my five, six years, we've gone from a third to a half. Um, there are financial reasons for that. Um, but there's also like a really key partnership one, which is we've refinanced our business. So when we don't fund things ourselves, we fund them with our main investment partner. There used to be a different organization that maybe had a different view of what was important in terms of investment. Our main funding partner now is the Mayor of London. And the key metric on that investment is how much affordable housing we start building year on year and complete building year on year. So that refinancing and realignment of purpose has been fundamental to increasing the amount of affordable housing and changing the balance between build to sell and affordable housing. Well, and as you said, huge need for affordable housing in, in London. So it's it's not like a, um, a market that doesn't require your presence, I'm sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. You do do um, shared ownership. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, how shared ownership fits into the market, and you know how you feel? Um, you know, it's it's working. I know there's there's been some you know questions around what percentage people should get involved in, and I mean, is it is shared ownership working? Yeah, nice nice question. I guess the the, the first really and direct answer is we don't decide on our schemes. So if all of our schemes are, with one notable exception, approves the proves a rule with a housing association, and that housing association buys from our partnership all of the affordable housing, they tell us what they think they need. And that's, that, that need is a product of two things, we're told time and time again. The most pressing need, as you, as you said, is social rented housing, you look at all of the statistics and it says that even our targets, let alone our 
housing delivery outputs are well below the amount of housing that's needed on low, you know, for low-income households. But then there is a residual balance of housing that our housing association partners keep telling us is needed, partly to subsidise rented housing and partly as a means to part ownership. So very different household income level, arguably in competition with some help to buy products, which is part of the reason that we don't we don't look to set up that competition with help to buy. Um, and then just reflecting on, is it working? I know that one of the challenges that we find when trying to facilitate delivery of shared ownership for our partners is when you work in the most central parts of London, as we do, almost exclusively zones one, two, three, when you get to larger home sizes and you look at the affordability of those homes, how much money do you need to pay up front and how much you need to pay per month? That's really challenging. So we do see the pressure of, you know, should we be giving more one-bed shared ownership is more affordable, but we know there may be quite a lot of demand for two-bed accommodation. It may not be affordable in that particularly central location. So I, I'd say it's a really challenging market. I wouldn't say it's not functioning. It's a really challenging market. I want you to take us to visit some of the, uh, the, your places that you're currently working on right now. Um, and I know one of them uh, you've mentioned is Fiery Park, but maybe you could just describe um, describe it to us, the kind of um, the atmosphere, the mix, and um, and tell us a little bit about it. Oh, yeah, lovely. Thanks. For, I wasn't sure which one you would pick. Thanks very much. Uh, my first thing, why, why I love Ferrari Park is because, uh, and thank you Catalyst for selecting us to, do, to redevelop that estate with them. That was the start of our business transformation from being a developer that does some placemaking and thinks about maybe doing housing estates to being all in on, let's say, regeneration. Everything we're doing now, everything that we're doing, all of the opportunities that local authorities and councils are providing uh, to us and housing associations is a state regeneration. And that wasn't intentional. We found that Ferrari Park was a good fit for us. I'm reasonably confident Catalyst would say that it's been a decent fit the other way around as well. And that's led to us doing those. So yeah, I get really excited as soon as we mentioned Ferrari Park. I think that was the start of the journey into estate regeneration. Um, it's a big site. Um, you know, over 200 households living on that uh, estate. You know, when we work on a range of sites, sometimes, you know, we have like 28, 26 families in some estates. So, you know, over 200 is a lot for us. Um, and to give a sense of the scale of that transformation those 200 households all come back while those who chose to leave early in the process will be joined by 800 or more other households. So you'll have a community of over 1,000 new homes right next to Acton Mainline Crossrail Station, Conway for Crossrail Start, uh, and on an estate that did its best to look in at itself and perhaps didn't physically look outwards as much as is true of many estates. So, you know, a really inclusive, open, green new community, which we're really excited about. Started on site January last year, expect to be there for many years. 
six years, might say five to construction colleagues. Estate regeneration um, has such uh, a, a mixed uh, legacy of success. So I, I think it'd be interesting to hear about what you think makes a successful project. They can be, um, well, first of all, you know, uncomfortable for existing residents. You know, you've got this this difficulty of, you know, whether you need to decant or not decant and whether people come back or um, are displaced. And I, I think it'd be interesting to talk about what you see as, um, as key to, you know, to the process of working with existing um, communities on site uh, as part of that um, development. Yeah, if I was to sort of look at key ingredients where you know this estate transformation appears to be going well, three come to mind really quickly. Um, the first is like the world's easiest. The majority of residents want their lives to be transformed. You know you're off to a good start. We're fortunate we don't work on any estate where that isn't the case. But I can't envisage going through the process of having to turn a minority in favour into a majority in favour. And I know a lot of our housing association friends will have done that for many years. I think that's a key ingredient. You know, it's their lives that we are helping to transform, not ours. You need a sense of ownership. This is, this is the mission that they're part of. This is what they want. It's not imposed on them. And all of that, like psychology of a, you know, the key ingredient of a project is why we were pretty unusual in saying that we thought that the Mayor of London's introduction of mandatory ballot requirements for estate transformation schemes was brilliant. So unless residents vote as a majority in favour of redeveloping their estate, you don't do it. We think it's the simplest and best way of making sure the right schemes come forward. So, yeah, that would be the first ingredient. Uh, second, like character, which is another reason why I get so excited about us having moved more into a state regeneration. As our business scaled up from maybe doing one or 200 home schemes to having now three schemes of 1,000 plus homes, one of the real risks was that we become bland at scale in terms of character or miss opportunities. So it needs character a bit like we look to be a bit edgy on interior design. We want people to say, oh, Man Anvil were involved in that. Some people won't love it. Hopefully lots will, but a lot of character. And importantly, that character needs to be one where if you were to ask a resident living there, do you feel proud of this place? Do you feel connected with it? The answer is yeah, with a smile on their face. So it needs to be sufficiently like real and natural to them and say, yeah, I, like, I feel like I still live in and own this place. I'm not a stranger. I'm not a stranger there. And it's an exciting place, a better place than before. So I'd say, yeah, character as well as residents in favour. And the, light, the last one, which we spend a lot more time on and is part of my, my role change, is I'd say a successful estate transformation project is where residents tell you and tell others that they feel that they're lives have been enriched and their opportunities are better. It's as much about how we help transform the way they think about themselves. And so we did a lot of work measuring sentiment. How do people feel in terms of pride in their local community, safety, which comes up frequently, but then also sense of opportunity. Do I feel 
more empowered and equipped to get a better job or you know help my children go through better education so life opportunity improving life opportunities i'd say is just as important as curating brilliant place making in the traditional architectural sense what's changed for you since uh covid when you're looking at these um, place-based initiatives when you're talking about enriching lives and, and opportunities. Um, has has there been a, a major shift in the last uh, two years? Yeah, I think that, don't take this the wrong way, I think that COVID was a godsend for designers. People who thought about how can I provide the best home living experience and then near home living experience and maybe we got complacent in foreign parts great example you've got a crossrail station on the corner of the site you can get into central london really quickly there's an element of make a good development and enable people to get to somewhere really exciting and what we really rapidly observed because residents told us was my immediate locality is more crucial than i ever realized because people spend more time there. So what do I have in terms of doorstep entertainment? Also another opportunity for me is that people, certainly my personal lived experience and what many residents told us, people felt more enthusiastic about spending time with their neighbours. So besides adapting our in-house design to facilitate homeworking, what can we do to create small places, sociable spaces, where people actually want to walk a few minutes, but not very far, to see some neighbours and or relatives outdoors? And we, didn't, we probably didn't make the most of the potential to use green spaces as sociable spaces. And that pent-up demand has really unleashed a huge range of creative energy from our architect or internal design team and from residents themselves and they started telling us we want different things here than we previously wanted can we shop locally somewhere that we like you know what businesses might work on the site that we'd be really pleased to accommodate what communal uses might you provide and there's a load of changes in ferrari park as just one of five estate regeneration schemes we're working on a lot of change to the to the ground uses that create more sociable opportunities. Tell, tell me more about that. What's happening on the ground use and how how might we we see it as different to what would have been there? Yeah, I think it's try and paint the picture for people who can't can't see and I tend to gesture around. Take three bits of the three bits of the sides. Like the first, the first the first bit, the junction, very hot of the scheme. There's a link north-south people can walk through from the main road down, in, down into the development. And we always designed a very strong pedestrian route west-east from the station. And at the crosshairs, in the very middle of the scheme, we have four buildings that meet at the edge of a, an area. And it was just designed as an area with residential entrances and it was a very nicely landscaped area but it, but what it did was allow people to get to their homes in a nice environment it didn't encourage them to stay there if you look at the design now it's transformed and in particular 
on the southern edge of that of that new community hub, we have a community kitchen, a residence lounge, a potting shed that then moves into communal gardens. We have a cycle hub that will also do learn to ride, learn to mend classes for residents and the wider community. In addition to residential facilities for people of all tenants, affordable and private. So when you when you work away around that community hub, it's no longer a residential hub. It's the new neighbourhood. So that that that's the biggest transformation. And then the other two areas we spent a lot of time working on, and thankfully, our life was made a lot easier by residents telling us what the right answer was for it. Like, where do you buy your coffee and your food? <laughs> Matters. We're really pleased that we'll be letting one of these three key food and drink outlets as an independent cafe, something you won't find in other areas, very appropriate for this location. And the main place to buy your weekly basket of, of food, we had some great appetite from investors and some you know, new entrants into the market and credit to our partners as well. You know, We concluded that the best outcome wasn't the one that made the most money. So we're really excited. That's local businesses, local art, creating character where everyone's included can see what's going on and feel like there's a real sort of sense of place that wasn't there and we hadn't really thought about before COVID. You've talked about uh, community feedback being key to these decisions and I wondered whether you had any thought about community engagement or those conversations and how they um, take place and in an increasingly digital um, environment and also just you know effective community community engagement in the context of um, there having been both effective and ineffective uh, engagement techniques employed over the years. Yeah, nice. We, we, we were on an interesting trajectory with community engagement and resident engagement three or so years ago before COVID sort of forced hands to adapt. So we were definitely of the mindset that digital engagement was underutilised. And we met some brilliant practitioners and consultants who shared the data with us of the number of people who shared feedback on a particular digital platform versus in a more conventional physical location. And our big drive, our number one drive was get more people to give feedback. So I had to like systemically ineffective com community engagement because when you look at most events, you know, you do well to get 20% of all residents turning up. Well, that's mad. Like, we do a survey internally. If you get less than 80%, we're really like, this is an unengaged workforce. If you've got less than 80%, oh, but you go to a resident event and it's all right that only 20% respond. So that was a big bit. And the other bit we were really interested in terms of digital engagement was that the profile of people responding was tapping into some segments of population that we think weren't getting heard enough, and particularly younger people. Really, really keen to drive more feedback from people in the 16 to 25 category, we think have lots of valid input to provide on development, may have different viewpoints from people in their 40s and 50s. 
And we know statistically are typically more pro-development. So it's good counterbalance. So, so you were on the digital journey. And then strangely, COVID, by forcing us to rely on digital, has shown us some of the flaws of our strategy. Because you take all the benefit of that. But we also noticed was that those in-person conversations, one-on-one, very different experience. We were told by residents it's a very different experience. And the statistics showed that we were getting less people turning up to those drop-ins virtually than we had actually when we were physically present. And then scarily, some older people were less willing to or able to even participate digitally. So great, we're on the journey to get more 16 to 25s involved, and we've done a brilliant job at excluding more 60 plus. So what one of the big things I've seen market-wide and that we've been implementing is actually really appreciating the basics and doing the basics well. A knock on the door, coffee in a hall or in their lounge, paper, newsletters, still needing to be translated often as well to, to, you know, to relevant language, handed out, as well as all of the brilliant digital platforms. So yes, yeah, so we've seen effective digital with its flaws, and we've grown to love more traditional engagement where physical presence, I think, is essential to building trust and enabling you to listen to what's really on people's mind. And that quality of conversation too, which is interesting because it might be not desirable to have 80% of people show up to a hall where they're just being spoken to, but it might be desirable to, you know, kind of filter down and have really quality conversations with um, a smaller number of residents. So yeah, yeah. We, have, we, have, we have this lovely saying from our founder who I mentioned, Madman, Madman. Um, so he says, you know, everyone has two ears and one mouth. and gives you a sense of the ratio between listening and talking. Feeling pretty, pretty bad in the podcast as I'm doing love talking, as I say. But I, do, I have noticed that you look at the patterns of feedback from residents and also our housing association partners, about what's gone best on engagement. And the key words that repeat most frequently are, I felt listened to, understood, involved in the conversation. The conversation, like all those are appreciation of how that person was allowed to participate. And yes, yes, the Mount Anvil communicated clearly regularly with me comes up as well. And Mount Anvil treated me with decency and respect. But it's really interesting on that two-to-one ratio. The most important thing about effective communication is how do you enable yourself to listen more effectively to residents, get their feedback, help them really feel like we've understood their feedback, and then be really professionally effective at implementing. I um, I think it's uh, great to hear about that kind of um, emphasis you've placed on measuring sentiment, on measuring, you know, your performance and on, on measurement and in general, when you talk about um, people's sense of opportunity, their sense of pride, their feelings of safety, there are a lot of different metrics uh, being marketed by different consultants, um, I know, around social value and social impact. And um, I'm wondering whether you've invented your own or is there kind of a standard, you know, that you're using um, that, or, or a partner in that case that you're engaged with? Yeah, I have a, 
friend who I went to university with a while ago, who is a massive advocate of two alternative return on investment, like financial metrics. And he's, he had the same change of role as me, was in investment, has gone into partnerships and communities. And he's like, and I can, I, I can totally hear the logic here. He's saying, if you need a business to understand the benefit of what you're doing and the business is in great in investment, give them proxy investment metrics. What's the pound benefit from doing that? So I absolutely understand uh, and admire the specificity of financial targets. I also think it sucks. Like, you know, we'd say we'll focus on feelings first and finance second. There's this really cool device on capturing feedback you'll find in airport toilets which says like how happy were you with the facility or how clean was it? You know, you can slap big smiley face or red unhappy face. Uh, that was part of the inspiration when we, were, when we concluded feelings mattered first. So easy. And we've been working with happy or not, who have happy or not terminals with two, two, two smiley faces registering very happy and quite happy a slightly disgruntled face and an unhappy face. And those terminals and that four-point system is at the heart of how we evaluate, evaluate resident sentiment at any event. So we always ask them, how do you find the event itself? Slap the pad. And how are you feeling about the proposed development? And those smiles, like, we don't need pound equivalents because we're measuring change over time. We said that was a good event because we can compare it to others. Or, oh, wow, we know that 80% of people were big smile or small smile. 80% is good because it's on average been 75. So that's our sort of lifted, semi-bespoke to this industry metric. Uh, and we use it in a, in a, in a uh, non-quantitative way. If we see smiles on the faces of residents, you know, we often say that's a decent sign that things are going well as well. But yeah, happy or not. Excellent. I've never heard of happy or not being used in that way. Of course, I've seen them at the airport and, and in the toilets, as you said. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, my kids love those because they can participate as well. So we talk about kind of an inclusionary um, software, but they they get it immediately. Like, oh, I did like this bathroom or I did not like this bathroom. And they are more likely to engage in the happy faces than any other survey um, ever, which I think is probably a good yeah. benchmark for um legibility one, one other one of that which i won't i can't say the name of the organization yet but this was just the coolest example i thought of make things simple to gather feedback and fun i think we enjoy the fun element as well so working with young children reviewing playgrounds in the locality of one of the estates that we're transforming and we want to know what equipment do they like and don't like and which playgrounds work well or not? Literally, thumbs up on a, on a stick, thumbs down. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's fun. It's really clear. Uh, and as a, you know, as a means of measuring sentiment, it's also giving us great design cues of what we should, shouldn't repeat because the people using the playground are the people who are putting the thumbs up and the thumbs down, not the adults who are designing thinking they know what equipment those children want. Which is never what you think. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> my son keeps on going for this bizarre like springy elephant in our playground and I'm perplexed it looks like it's been like literally over to one side and the worst bit of kit I would definitely vote for it to go and he, I think he would he would cling to it dearly <laughs> Yeah, well, it was very funny in um, a local playground, there were these little Wendy houses. And I took a photo because um, nobody was in the Wendy houses or using the little window or even the little cooking. They were all sitting on top of the Wendy houses. <laughs> and it was kind of, it turned into a climbing frame rather than anything else. Um, I just have one more question for you, which is a slight shift. But, you know, we are in the context of a cost of living crisis. We've got um, you know, the, the climate change coming down uh, the line, but also the the issue of energy prices. And I just wanted to ask, given your um, exposure to affordable housing, whether you're, that's kind of increasingly something that you're talking about and what you're thinking about when it comes to um, energy, uh, either generation or insulation um, and net zero and uh, the climate crisis in general. Oh, I'm really, really pleased you picked that one. Yeah, that's a it's a really important one for us, that cost of living issue. Um, and it's pretty fundamental to where our sustainability strategy as a business has gone. You could say there's two, broadly two directions. There are those that lean very environmentally with, with really valid planetary concerns. And there are some who adopt more of a sort of social lean you know, what environmentally is important, beneficial to people. And one of the absolutely central parts of our sustainability strategy that um, we'll be launching next this year is a 10-year plan that we've been working with a number of partners on, is saying, actually, energy efficiency, reducing energy use, is important in terms of the environment. And it hits the wallet of the residents we work for. It's like one of the best win-wins. And one of our key like, KPIs on, on sustainability is looking at how we can reduce the energy usage, particularly on affordable homes, well, all tenants, but particularly on affordable homes, uh, in that way that marries social and environmental uh, benefit. And we're, we're luckily, we're a couple of years into this, having trialled it in a, in a big scheme in Newham, right next to the London International Exhibition Centre, if people know that. And we work with a brilliant consultancy practice called Planet Mark, uh, looking at ways to change design and, and, and insulation, and also to deliver workshops and education to people who are going to live there about how to reduce your energy footprint. And that was our first Planet Mark certified scheme where the reduction in operational energy and operational carbon emissions was principally driven by us trying to reduce energy usage. So it really hits that happy or not sentiment, uh, I guess, you know, as we're getting used to these kind of higher, higher cost, energy cost bills coming through, you can imagine actually making an impact on that being a, a happy button to hit. Yeah, yeah. We, one of the things we, we, we maybe misunderstood was how close to home most residents' our minds are. First thing I ask you about is, well, what's my new home going to be like? And they're interested in the place, but it's much more about the home. And then nearly everybody needs to think about finances and, and where you can use good design to 
improve the financial standing of residents by reducing household costs or, very importantly at the moment, reducing the increase in household costs because they're pretty scary right now, that's a fabulous outcome. And it's really close to home. And they're paying. We're going to help them pay less. And that's more than once that you've mentioned the value of good design. It seems to be coming through. You've mentioned it in terms of character and feeling proud and connected. You've mentioned it in terms of um, it being COVID being a gift to designers because we were maybe complacent about the design of the home and the environments that we were in. And now a design in terms of carbon. So I'm going to guess that you, um, ha your architects are pleased to work with you on that basis. But um, what is it that you think that architects and designers, what is it that you look for in the architects and designers that you work with? <laughs> well, if you'd seen the sentiment survey from the design managers who were asked what it was like to work with me recently, you might you might have a different view. We do that every uh, six months to see what internally sentiment is. What do we look for um, and what have we looked for? Because we've actually been expanding our, our design team and as we are on, on technical design side as well. Very much a sense of creativity and, and it's maybe linked to like the core cultural competency that we look for when we hire people. We don't really want to hire experts who think they're experts and will keep being experts because they keep doing things that they think is right. We hire people who are great and have great potential, but have like this in insanely hungry learning attitude. We call it a learner tool. What got you to being a brilliant designer so far won't allow you to keep being a brilliant designer because you're going to have to adapt. So the ability to adapt the way that you work, creativity, looking for opportunities is right at the, right at the hub of it and reflecting on the, the two brilliant women that we hired recently. And both of them scored really highly on that learn it all criteria. They were experts in their area, but they also had a really good proven track record at becoming experts at different things by doing things in different ways and learning from others and looking at the flaws and what they've done. And that's really integral to Mananville to just pursue better and better by doing things differently with a learning mindset. Gender balance and diversity and diversity of background is a huge issue in property and architecture um, in general and the construction industry in general. Um, is that something that you are looking to tackle through your, your hiring practices um, or something that you're aware of, especially as you are um, working in that, in that central London market with social housing and affordable housing? Yeah, it's, enormous, it's enormously important. Actually, when I go back to mentioning our principal funder is the mayor of London and I said that the main metric of performance is affordable housing I failed to mention that the other one that we have at the core of it is the performance on diversity and inclusion where to the credit of the deputy mayor for housing in particular they are really passionate about it but also very demanding of their investment partners there's so many different bits on diversity um, I'll just I'll pick gender as you as you as you hinted at it, and certainly I, I I read last year some of the statistics within architectural so practices are challenging. But actually, if you were to extrapolate and you just say, how well are we doing 
getting women into construction and development. I mean, that was a really live conversation three or four years ago here in Mananville. You know, not, not good enough in construction and not good enough in development. And the really big shift that we put in when we launched the Makers and Mentors program with the Mayor of London, uh, I think 2020, we now have 150 signed up mentors there. But the really big like focus there was let's let's make sure that brilliant women, particularly brilliant young women, understand the range of fabulous jobs in development. It's not just construction, and we do want more women in construction. We have an IT team here. I look to my side, I can see a finance team, a sales team, a marketing team, and as I said, a design team. And quite often when we ask youngish children, you know, what, you know, what jobs do you think you could do if you work for a developer? They'll say, oh, you can build stuff. And it takes a while. We do these little workshops with, with children. And you say, like, here you go, buy this site. How would you brand it? How would you market it? How would you design it? And they go, oh, that's part of your job. So that's a really big one for us, and we're really pleased that what was very much initially thinking about women in construction became women in development and has morphed into a programme sponsored by the Mayor of London about improving diversity and inclusion within our business. And now, as we look externally with the consultants and partners and subcontractors, we're going to be demanding of them in the same way that the Mayor has been demanding of us. Well, Mark, it's really interesting to talk to you and really great range of um, things we've, we've touched on. I feel like we could we could go on for a while, but um, I just want to thank you for uh, talking to me today about the work of Manoville. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.